Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, we're already a good a good service, just a, a time to focus on you. Lord, what beautiful songs and, and wonderful thoughts of just your faithfulness. And, and just, Lord, we, we're just in awe. Because we can't be that faithful. We just, we just are so sinful. And Lord, we, we try, but we can't be faithful like you can be faithful. And Lord, we just are dependent upon you. We, we just thank you for your faithfulness in our life. And, and, and never leaving us alone. Wow. We thank you. You are so gracious and so kind. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sin, the privilege that we have to be together as, as forgiven believers and coming to your word and looking at your word and, and being able to glean from it. And Lord, we have so many, many blessings, spiritual blessings and, and even physical blessings. And Lord, I, I pray that we would we would give back to you, even those the praise that you deserve, but also even in the physical realm of just our physical blessings, we we uh, pray that we would we would just become in the habit of giving back to you and 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 serving you and and allowing our lives to just be focused completely upon you and you be the center of our lives. Lord, we pray now as we look at your word that uh, we would be be willing to accept it for what it really is, the Word of God, we would be, our hearts would be open and ready to obey it, whatever it says. Lord, help us to, help us to allow, allow it to, to sink deep into our life and work it out into our lives. And Lord, we just thank You for Your, your precious Word. Pray that You would bless our time here now. I pray that I would be able to communicate what the text says and, and an understanding of this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been talking about elders, and it's so good to have Tim come up and, <clears throat> and share as a potential elder. And uh, just thank you for, or thank uh, him for his willingness to serve in that role. It is a heavy responsibility. It's a heavy role. We... Um, when we when we look at elders in Scripture, and, we, and that's what we did last week, and we're going to do this week, we find that it shines light not just in the elders' role, not just on the elders' role, but it also shines light on the whole structure of the church, what the church is to be like. Um, the elders are are the core, really, of the church. Is what we find in Scripture when we begin to look at it. And I have spent two weeks now just. Studying this out again, I have done this in the past, and it's just so good to to think through these issues again. And I find that when I study about the elders, that I stud, I'm studying really the church and the structure of the church. And there's many people today that are trying to redefine the church, just like marriage is being redefined for us, and in, in, uh, in the laws and the courts. Uh, it seems to be that everyone has a different idea of the church and what the church is to be like. And uh, so we're kind of seeing it being redefined for us. It doesn't really quite look as it should in Scripture from the New Testament church. 
There's some that would um, say that really all that matters is evangelism. And so we, we just go out into the world and we evangelize, and they'll say, yeah, disciple them, disciple them to evangelize. And so it just keeps perpetuating. And, and it really doesn't matter how the church is to structure, to be structured, and what goes on necessarily in the church. The emphasis is on evangelism and discipleship. In fact, what they'd say is the end justifies the means. Uh, the end result is people getting into heaven, and so we, we, and that's why we're here on earth, and so it doesn't really matter what the church is to be like. Well, I would say that that is, that is wrong because we want to glorify God in the process, not just the end result. We want to glorify God in the process. We want Daniel's Bible Church to glorify God. We want it to, to be a pleasing to God in the process. Now, there's also some people with ideas... <clears throat> already in their mind what the church is to look like, and then they just go to Scripture for help. They go to Scripture to, uh, to get some good ideas of maybe how to build their church or how to make it grow or that kind of thing. And so they start with their perspective. They know that, uh, yeah, this is, this is the church, and, and, and uh, now, now let's go to Scripture for help. And they start and they base it upon their perspective. And I would say, no, that's wrong. We have to start with Scripture. We don't start with our own ideas and then go into Scripture. We start with Scripture and come out of Scripture, pull the idea of the church out of Scripture. Now, there's some also that would say that um, they just don't like organized religion at all. In fact, that's becoming more and more popular. They just don't like structure. They like freedom. They like spontaneity. They, they don't really want buildings and all the responsibilities that comes with that. It's just about the church, just about the people. There's some good elements to that, but that, again, that, that's not really consistent with what we see in Scripture. There is structure there. And we see that in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament. And we also see kind of like a, a group that... That's kind of reinventing the church about every five years, maybe every ten years. I know when I was in seminaries, not seminary, but when I was in Bible college, we, um, we had to do a paper on what do you think the church is going to be like in, in 20 years? And what do you think the church is going to look like in 2010, 2013? And so we had to put these things down on paper, and it's, and it's, uh, it's kind of embarrassing, really, to think about going back and reading that. Because that's not where the idea of the church comes from. It doesn't matter what I think about the church. We're not trying to reinvent the church every five to ten years. Some of the church growth movements kind of, they kind of do that. Kind of reinvent it. And they put a, a different emphasis here. Maybe on missions or maybe on small groups. Yeah, that's the answer. Or maybe on music. That's the answer. And it's kind of redefining, restructuring thing and things and uh, for the purpose of maybe church growth. But Daniel's Bible Church, what we do is we start with Scripture. We have to start there. That is our authority. And so we start with Scripture for even an idea, concept of the church. And every element in the church, we start with Scripture and we end with Scripture. It has to be thoroughly biblical, thoroughly scriptural. Begin and end with Scripture. Scripture does not change. So we don't change the church 
every five or ten years. It just does not change because Scripture does not change. And we stick closely to Scripture. And the culture may, may, the winds may blow and changes may happen, but the church should remain the same. It's not that we don't play different music or don't do things differently. Sometimes we do, but we don't change the definition. We don't change the structure of the church. Those things are set in Scripture. Now, the church started a couple of thousand years ago, and on that day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people, and I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts. 3,000 people, all of a sudden, you have a church. Now, that's a church. (laughs) I would love to have 3,000 people, maybe not in this building, but uh, you know what I mean. Now, they had some structure already in place. When uh, when Christ was here, he made 12 disciples. Now, one of them, Judas Iscariot, he went out and hanged himself after he uh, betrayed Christ. And so there was a vacancy, and we see at the early uh, chapter 1 in the book of Acts that the, uh, the apostles got together and said, Look, for the sake of the position, we better, we better get somebody else in there. Somebody's got to take Judas's place. Why? Because of the structure the structure that Christ had put into place. For some reason, they felt the need to do that, and so they did. So that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, there was um, there was strong preaching by Peter and the apostles, and um, there was a lot of people that responded to that message. In fact, look at verse 41. So then those who had received his words... They said, yes, you're right, and we receive that, we believe that. They received his words, they were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That's a lot. It's a good thing they had the structure already in place when this happened. And they did. They were able to baptize that many, they were able to bring that many in to the church, and the church just exploded and there was other times that there was more brought into the church. But now, look what, uh, look what we see then happen to the church. In verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of the bread and to prayer. So the structure of the church was that the, the apostles, these twelve they had the authority from Christ, and we read it last week, that, uh, that uh, Christ said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now, now go and make disciples, baptizing, and teach them everything that I've taught you. And so that's what the apostles do. The structure was in place. Now, how do you get 3,000 people plus? Uh, well, they began to just teach them, and they submitted to the apostles' teaching. That was the way, that was the way it started now, the church then began to grow. There was persecution that came upon the church. We see that in Acts chapter 9. Paul was one of those people. And uh, the church began to, to scatter. The apostles, they began to scatter too. Now, most of them stayed in Jerusalem at the time. But some of them began to scatter, to go away. But missionaries began to be sent out as well. And... Um, there was a need actually in the church in Jerusalem because many people were still there. And there was a need there. And um, 
The church in Antioch was a missionary church. It was planted there. And this was in within the first 10, 15, 20 years of the church existence. They saw a need. They said, well, we are going to send down to the church some money. And that's what they did. If you look at chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 30. And they sent some money. It says uh, they, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul. Now, Barnabas and Saul were designated missionaries from the church. They were sent out by the church. But it says they sent it in charge of them. Now, this is very careful. They had to be very careful about this and make sure nobody would take this money and, and made sure it get to the proper people, the proper place. So Barnabas and Saul said, gave that to the elders, the elders. The elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they would use that money as they, as uh, to, as they see fit. But you notice that's the first time that elders are mentioned in this way, in, in this official capacity. Now look over at verse chapter fourteen, verse twenty-three. So we have a, a structure. The the apostles. Some of them there stayed in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem we see elders. But now look in verse 14, verse 23. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as they went out, just a reminder, as they went out as missionaries, they would go into a city, preach the gospel. As people would respond, they then appointed elders. Now, these elders were from the missionaries that were appointed from the elders and apostles from the church in Jerusalem. So you kind of see that expansion. They appointed elders. And we read in Ephesians that God has placed in the church gifted men to be able to handle this role. And so that's what they do. Now, there is a situation that came up on the mission field. Uh, as they preached the gospel, there were some that said, no, you, you can receive Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. And it's Christ and circumcision. Or Christ and this law. And so they tried to... There was a, there's a heated discussion. In chapter 15, verse 2, we see, and when Par, Bar, uh, Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, and this was other people debating them and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others, uh, others of them, should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. So we see the both the two groups together. The apostles were there and the elders were there. The elders of the church were there. And you see the two together. And it says that they reported all that God had done with them. And down in verse uh, 4, And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders. So you see these two groups, apostles, and the elders were there. Apostles and elders, and they were received. Now look at verse 6, same chapter. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. What matter is this? This is the matter of the circumcision. What do we do about this? This is really an issue. Because you have those Jews out there saying, no, you have to be circumcised. And James actually stood up. He was probably the pastor of that church. Probably um, uh, some of those... uh, 
that, that were, he was one of the elders of that church that were being probably discipled maybe by the apostles. And the apostles were, were there and uh, they were, these groups were together. These two came together. And look at verse 22 of chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas. Um, you, can, you can see these men. And so these two groups, they got together and they said, here's what we need to do. Here's what, here's what Christ would say about this issue. And they wrote a letter. And they gave it to Barnabas and Paul and they sent them out as missionaries. And they say, if anyone questions this, here's what the elders and the apostles have to say about this. The elders of the church in Jerusalem and the apostles, this is what they, uh, this is the spiritual leaders, they came together and this is what the, the, uh, the answer to this question is. And you can read that from verses 23 to 29. Now look at chapter 16, verse 4. Now, while they were passing through the city, they were delivering the decree that was this, this, um, this message from the elders and the pastors in Jerusalem, this official word about circumcision, which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders. So you see those two groups, apostles and elders, still together, who are in Jerusalem for uh, they observed. For them to observe. So they would go from church to church and say, hey, here's the official word on that. Do you get the picture? Do you see the structure there? What was going on? Now look at uh, chapter 20. And this is familiar to you. What, What we've already seen is that elders and even apostles were part of the structure of the church. Of course, the the apostles were the original twelve. And the elders were probably disciples of them in this particular church in Jerusalem. And, uh, and as they had missionary opportunities, they would plant elders in each church. They were appointed to a church, a group of elders, elders plural. And when Paul then, this was, this was later on, this was probably about 50 years after the church was, uh, had been organized, you still see elders in place, but you see something else. In chapter 20, verse 17, from Melantus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders from the church. Now, he was getting ready to go back into Jerusalem. He knew once he got into Jerusalem, there was going to be persecution and uh, things were not going to go so well for him. And he said, this is probably the last time you're going to see my face. And so he gets these elders together, the elders of the church, and he commends them. And you can see that. And I, I would encourage you to read at least chapter, uh, verse 25 down to the end of the chapter. Paul's encouragement to those elders. Now turn over to chapter 21, verse 18. This will be the last verse in Acts that we'll look at. Chapter 21, verse 18. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He finally gets there. And in verse 18 it says, And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. All of the elders, all of those who were, uh, were responsible for that church, all of the structure of that church, the elders were there. James was probably the pastor teacher of that church. 
And he met with the elders and he gave them a missionary report. Here's what's happening. Now, it wasn't soon after that that Paul was, uh, was imprisoned and that's the rest of the story. But what we see in the early church, the structure of the church, the church revolved around the elders. And that elder position was appointed by the apostles. And, and they had the same structure in each individual church that they did within the ministry of Christ, that Christ had appointed. And you see that same structure. What you don't see is this apostolic succession where they, uh, they, um, uh, these, these elders spread out to every church and, and these, uh, these uh, apostles had uh, distributed their authority in that kind of way. No, they were submitted to Christ's teaching. It was Christ's teaching. It wasn't some kind of office. What you don't see is some kind of hierarchical structure there. Every church was completely independent. Every church was autonomous. The the highest authority in that church was the elders. And there was no one over that church. Now, those are very important principles. That's why Daniel's Bible Church is a non-denominational church. We don't have any other structure over a church. We don't have cardinals. We don't have bishops. We don't have a, a pope. We don't submit ourselves to a human being. We see the structure is a group of men, a group of men that were in charge. And we're beginning to see what they are to do. Now turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week I pointed out the responsibility of the elders... We're still talking about that. But let me remind you that Paul is talking about mature believers here. And he's just refining them. In fact, you might want to say that he's just adjusting their attitude. Now let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you. It's a request. There's some things that you need to think about and you need to understand about your thinking concerning these elders But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, living or or live in peace with one another. Live in peace with one another. And what I want you to see is, again, what we see is the... A mature believer has the right understanding, the right appreciation, the right knowledge of the role of elders and their responsibility in the church. And the question we're asking is, what are the roles and responsibilities of the elders which they will give an account before God? What are their roles? What does God expect them to do? And Paul gives us just a brief, just a quick synopsis uh, uh, maybe a, a three-point outline here of the basic job description of these elders. And last week we looked at the first one. Elders, elders are working. They work diligently, hard in the spiritual realm. It's in the spiritual realm. This is the realm of Satan, where Satan is doing battle. It's in the spiritual realm. And I like uh, I like what our Constitution now says. It says. Uh, that the elders are to know the truth, they are to communicate the truth, and they are to refute the truth. And that's that realm, that spiritual realm. 
knowing the truth, communicating the truth, battling for the truth, refuting the truth, or refuting error. Now, there's one danger here. For the elders living in that world, they could, number one, they could be pulled into the world, the physical world, and just running the physical church, feeding the poor, doing, doing all kinds of physical things, and we can, we can do that. And there's a, the early church was getting pulled that direction with all the people with the heavy workload, and they said, no, it is not good that we would neglect prayer and the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables, in order to serve in that physical world. And so there was a danger of getting pulled just into that physical world and just doing the physical world. And they said, no, we've got to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. That was their focus. That's what they needed to do. Paul then is calling us, as far as application, to appreciate them. Understand them. Get to know them. The word is actually to know in an intimate way. Get to know them. And when you do that, you'll see how hard their job is. And you would appreciate them. You would understand them. Now, number two. Number two role of an elder is that they are overseers. They Elders oversee God's people. They oversee God's people. To help us understand that, turn over a couple of chapters uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now this is a passage that Dave just read for us a little bit earlier, but I just want you to look at in the qualifications of an elder, just one little qualification in verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity... But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? How will he take care of the church of God? It's an overview. It's, a, it's an overseer position. He is to see the parameters, the, the big picture. He is to shepherd it with that in mind. He's to see the borders, the boundaries, the, the fence lines... He's to see the truth so well that he can point out error. He is to see the, uh, the proper values so well that he can see when your, when your value system is a little messed up. He is to see obedience and righteousness in a person's life to be able to say, no, this is not in obedience. This is not a righteous life. You're crossing the line. Crossing the line. They're to inspect fruit. They're fruit inspectors. They, they look and see if they're, we're growing. They constantly are, are sensing, is this heart hard? Is this person hard to the things of the Lord? Is he becoming hard to the things of the Lord? Or does he still have a soft heart to the things of the Lord? Now, they're also, and throughout Scripture, we're... Well, let me, let me go back and kind of flesh this out. Just this week, I had the opportunity to shepherd my family a little bit in just a small way. But um, we were eating dinner together, and um, we try to do that every night. But uh, my oldest son, I hate to pick on Caleb, but my oldest son, um, he, uh, he said something that was uh, critical to one of his older bro- or younger brothers. Now, what I did was I corrected him. I said, no, you, you know, and I just, I kind of laid into him probably heavier than I should. I wasn't yelling or anything, but, but I led into him 
um, not just teaching Caleb, but I'm teaching the rest of my boys as they hear as well. But I was reminded, I was convicted in my own heart, I was reminded of the seminary professor that, uh, that uh, he was a Greek professor, and he told me this, he said, look, he said, you get up there and you just do what you're going to do and I will tell you if you're wrong. And that's the way he talked. He just talked. I'll correct you if you're wrong. If not, if you don't hear anything from me, everything's good. I'm thinking, you know, that's not the best. Most of my seminary professors, they would teach. They would teach preemptively. They would teach saying, okay, here's something to watch out for. Here's something to not, uh, that, that you're doing good. And, and they would preempt those things. And they would teach as opposed to just always correcting and I started thinking, my poor oldest son, that was the way I was parenting. Sometimes I parent that way. I just wait for them, for them to mess up, and then I, I pounce on them. And it was usually Caleb, because he's the oldest. He's going to mess up first. So I had to go and apologize to Caleb. And I said, Caleb, I, man, I, I don't want that to be a pattern of my life. You know? I don't want me to, to shepherd my children in that way. Just wait for them to mess up and then pounce on them. That's not shepherding. Shepherd is preemptive. They take the initiative and do it. So you get a kind of a glimpse of, of that. The, the elders are to protect the church. They are to be the example of the church. They are to care for the church. All of that responsibility puts the elders right at the core of the church. They're responsible for the church, the spiritual well-being of the church. And Paul is saying, esteem them. Trust them, respect them. And the author of Hebrews, I can remind you of this verse. It's a verse that you already know. But the author of Hebrews says to, if I can find Hebrews, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. That is so sobering. That is so sobering for our elders. That is serious. They will give an account for every decision they make, every time they get... In fact, James mentions that don't let many of you be teachers because you're going to give a stricter judgment. God's going to give you a stricter judgment. You're hold to a higher standard as a, as a teacher. Every decision they make, every time they teach, God's going to evaluate that. And they have to give an account and what you don't see here in this structure is one man dictating. You don't see that. You, you don't see one pastor who is doing all of this. You see a group of men, a group of elders. And they meet together until there's unanimity. Until they agree about an issue. That's just what we saw in the book of, book of Acts. They agreed upon the issue. They looked at the issue and then they made a statement. Here's, and they acted as one. And that's what we see as an elder. But here's something else that you don't see. You don't see democracy. It's, it's really not there. You don't see the 3,000 people coming together and saying, Okay, I vote, uh, I vote these 12 guys in since they have the experience. And, and you don't see democracy. You don't have them voting on everything. You just don't. That's not the model that's set for us. All of the weight, all of the responsibility falls on the shoulder of the elders. They are completely responsible. Also, what you don't see, 
these elders are not trying to build the church. They're not in the back room strategizing how can we get more people into this church and strategizing on how big we can get. No, that is God's job. God adds to the church. He is building the church. What we are doing, what elders do, is just oversee it. Just kind of managing it. In fact, we really don't even lead the church. It's kind of like a train track or or, or a train. The engineer, he's not really driving that thing. I've never seen a steering wheel in the train. You just don't do that. He's not really steering it. All we're doing is trying to keep the track, keep the train on the track. God has already given us direction here. We're just trying to keep it on track, keep it from derailing, keep it from going off. That's, that's managing. That's overseeing. That's being in charge. And, Overseeing it in the way of righteousness. That's even harder. It's not just tangible things, it's righteousness. And, and we deal with our own sinful heart as well. Let me, let me apply this in another way here. One of the reasons they counted, they counted the, the 3,000 and, and actually 5,000 later and other times you hear numbers in the New Testament. They didn't count so that, uh, so that they can have a vote and everybody can have uh, their say. They, they did this for, and they had membership uh, so that they can um, know who they are responsible for. And they probably got together, guys, there's only 12 of us and there's uh, 3,000 of them. How are we going to do this? We're responsible for these people. They didn't have church membership uh, in order to, to give everybody a say so that everybody can vote, so that your voice can be heard. Now, that's the way we think in our democratic society, in our day. It's just the way we think. We kind of read those ideas into the text. Uh, that's, that's really contrary to the New Testament church. They had numbers there so that they can shepherd them so that they could be in charge, so that they can understand where they're and get to know them and, and see the parameters. Who are we responsible for and who are we not responsible for? They had, they had responsibility. Now, you say, as I'm raising up some issues here, well, what about deacons? Where do deacons play into all of this? I mean, sounds like the elders have the responsibility. They have the control. They have uh, all of the leadership position. Well, you, what we see in Scripture is really very little about deacons. When you see the church, all the responsibility is laid up out the, at the feet of the, the elders, all of that. Deacon, the word deacon is just diaconized, just servant. And it's really used for the whole church at different times. It's used just to serve. It starts out in uh, Acts chapter 6, just waiting on tables, that kind of food service, distributing the food to the, to the widows. And they needed, they needed some men to just do some physical things. And so you had those men that said yes, and the congregation said yes. Look at these men, and they raised them up, seven men, and they helped they help the, the elders. They serve the elders so that the, the elders could be freed up in order to focus on prayer and the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. 
Now, if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have deacons here. And this is really the first time that you see the term deacons and, and uh, deacons really in an official capacity. In an official capacity. It's not necessarily an office. There's not a lot of authority there, but it is in an official capacity. And it starts in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of, dig- uh, of dignity, not double-tongued, can't be liars, not addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, uh, greedy, um, but holding to the mystery of the faith, things that weren't revealed that are now revealed. You know, he's talking about the, the Word of God and trusting to Scripture. And they hold to that with a clear conscience. Yes, this is what we believe. And he says these men must be first tested. So there's a, there's a need in the church, some kind of physical need. And, and yes, these servants uh, come uh, to, to bear and they said, well, you must, uh, there, here's some qualifications. And you've got to test these men out and make sure they meet these qualifications. And then what you don't see again is an office necessarily, but they serve. They were sent out to serve. Even that incident in Acts chapter 6 it really was a temporary position. It was a temporary thing. They had no real uh, final authority as a, an office, but they were official. And they had testing because they had to be qualified. If they were going to represent the church in any way, we had to make sure they were on the same page. If they would match up, yes, with the, the elders. And that's exactly what you see. But their role was to free up the elders from the everyday physical, day-to-day responsibilities and probably financial responsibilities of the church an operation of the church. There's no real authority. But it was an official position without an official office necessarily like the elders because all the responsibility lay at the feet of the elders. You say, if that's the case, if that's the case, There's no rule authority with the deacons, and that kind of goes contrary to what we see in many churches around our area. If that's the case, that there's no rule authority there, why can't women become why can't women become deacons? Why not? Why couldn't they become deacons? Well, the answer there is they they can't. It's it's a servant position. It's not an authoritative position. Women can serve. And I'd look at our church. And I'm telling you, we've got a lot of women that serve in very practical, day-to-day ways in helping the church. And so what you see in verse 12, I'm sorry, in verse 11, women. Now, he doesn't say they're wives or they're women. No, it's just women. And he puts this in the same category as the deacons. This is just qualifications of Women deacons, deaconesses must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Then he goes, now deacons are to be husband of one wives, and he goes on and gives qualifications there. You say, well, that's not the way I've seen it before. I know, it's a refining process. And our our constitution, we're trying to, to... Upgrade our constitution to what we see in Scripture. And what we see in Scripture is that deacons serve no no authority. They're just serving the elders. And there's many, many ways in which they can serve in what we say. And I, 
I know that many translations say their wives, but there's no preposition there. He's not talking about the wives of the deacons. He is talking about women. There's just no way around that. We've looked at it from every point of view. Plus, he doesn't say anything about elders' wives, the qualification for an elder's wife, because that's not the issue. No, we're talking about servants of the church. You say, well, if that's the case, wouldn't we see examples of that in the New Testament church? And we do. If you look over to Acts, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16, you see an example of this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he is commending to them, these believers at Rome, our sister Phoebe, who is a diakonos. It's in the feminine form. She is a a female servant, a servant of the church. And and she seems to be in some kind of official, uh, official capacity. She's trying to help maybe this other church or maybe helping this church. And what church is it? Which is at Centuria. A specific lady given a specific title. Not necessarily authoritative title. There's nothing there. She's just serving So we have an example. And we're trying to structure our constitution in such a way as to reflect biblical principles. And that's just where we are. That's just what we see. It's hard to go through Scripture and see and deal with these texts and and try to just explain them away in some way that our culture seems acceptable. But we, we can't do that any longer. So we have to just admit to here's what Scripture says No matter what the culture says. Now, let me turn back over to First Thessalonians. Let me give you one point, because I'm not going to leave this time having only accomplished one point. We are going to get through two. And I'll do it quickly. Just real quick, look at the end of verse 12. It says, Having charge over you in the Lord concerning spiritual matters, concerning spiritual things. I can't come into your house and tell you how to do this or that. No, it's in the spiritual realm. And what do they do? They give you instruction. They give instruction. And the word there is admonish. The word there is to to come alongside. And what they're doing is they come alongside and encourage you to submit to the things of the Lord, to submit to Scripture, to submit to things that you know is right. The only skill that the elders are supposed to have is to be able to handle the Word. So you're taking the Word of God and you're applying it to people's lives. And that's the difference um, in that. It's not just conveying information. This isn't just instruct you, conveying information. No, this is, this is coming alongside and developing convictions in your life. It's taking sound doctrine and applying it thoroughly into your life. The only tools that they have is precepts, is the Word of God, and, and their example. It's all we see in Scripture. We cannot use force. I cannot come in and uh, you're, you're not being a good Christian, so I'm going to put you in jail. We can't do that. We don't have that kind of authority. Now, two or three years, a hundred years ago, the church and the state merged and the church would just cut your head off if you weren't, if you were preaching heresy or something. But that's not, that's not biblical. They, Elders appeal to the mind, appeal to the sense of responsibility that you have to submit yourself to the Word of God. Now, I want you to see one example of this. Turn over to the book of Philemon. 
the book of Philemon. This is just a great example of a shepherd, of a man who knows what needs to be done and is encouraging everyone involved to submit themselves to doing what is right in the circumstances. Philemon. Philemon is just this tiny little book, 25 verses. It's just a letter written from Paul to this, this man named Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy man. He had a church in his home, it says, uh, at the end of verse 2, a church in your home, in your house. And he was a fellow worker with Paul. He's probably a good uh, Christian servant and just loves the Lord. But he had some money and they would meet with him. And they met in his home. And he had some slaves. One of those slaves ran away. And that, name, that uh, slave's name was Onesimus. And he ran away, but he came in contact with Paul. Now, Onesimus, let me just remind you, Onesimus means useless. That's what his name means. Can you believe that? He was titled useless. A slave that was useless. In verse 10... He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Paul was in prison and he, and he comes in contact with this man, uh, Onesimus, and he learns his story and, and Onesimus comes to know the Lord. He's born again, born again, whom you form, uh, formerly was, who formerly was useless, verse 11, useless to you has now, is now useful. Both to you and to me. You see those plain words? See what he's doing there? He's useful now because he has accepted Christ. He has surrendered his life to Christ. He is submitting to Christ's principles now. And here's what he's instructing Onesimus to do. He says, I have sent him back to you. Now how in this world do you get a slave that successfully ran away to go back? That just blows my mind. Apart from Christ, that does not happen. Paul, being the shepherd, being the elder, he's encouraging this man to do what would be contrary to his very nature. I don't want to go back and be a slave again. That's what Paul's asking him to do. Submit to what is proper. Submit to what is the right thing to do. Now, he's sending this letter to Philemon, remember? And he's appealing to Philemon. Philemon, now he's doing the right thing. You need to do the right thing too. Look at verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ. Now what is he saying? Not enough confidence. It's actually much confidence in Christ. And basically he's referring to the authority that Christ has given him as apostle. Confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. I could order you to do it. But he says, I don't want to do that. He says, yet for the sake of love, I rather appeal to you. I appeal to you. Philemon, this is just the right thing to do. This is the proper thing to do. And that is the greatest picture. It's a wonderful picture of an elder to, to get us to do what would, con- would be contrary to what we would want to do. But it, it's the right thing to do. It's just what Christians do. And Paul himself, he was just doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing the proper thing to do. And he got this slave. You know, the assumption here was that everyone involved here wanted to please God. They wanted to please God. Isn't that an incredible thought? It's a wonderful thought. If we all want to please God, then we just submit ourselves 
not to elders telling us what to do, but we submit ourselves to the Word of God because we want to just please please God. Now, one last thing. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm quitting right here. I just want you to look at the last. This is the way Paul applies this. He's applying it now, and I want to apply it to our lives. He says, live in peace with one another. Now, he's not talking about just all of the people live at peace. Now, he's talking about the two groups that he's mentioned here. The elders, the elders on one side, and the people on one side. And he says, now live at peace. Live at peace with one another. It's just a, a submission. Everybody has to do their part. Elders have to do their part. They're going to give an account. Congregation have to do their part submitting to the Word of God. We're just, we're just playing our roles here. Because why? Because we want to please God. We just, it, it may come contrary to what we want to do. It may come contrary to our American culture. But sometimes we just have to submit. We have to just do what God has called us to do. Now, just by way of application, are you bringing the world's attitude toward leaders? Are you bringing that attitude into the church? We have to be very careful. Because right now, you know, I get as frustrated as anybody with our officials. A bunch of scoundrels, in my opinion. <laughs> but I can't bring that attitude into the church. It's not right. It's not healthy. Paul's saying appreciate them, esteem them, love them, and live with them in peace. We submit to them. I would encourage you to know your elders. Know know them. Come to appreciate what they're trying to do in your life, in their life. They're not perfect. They're far from it. Let me tell you, I sit with these guys. So we have, to, we have to recognize that in our own lives. We have to see that. Our, we have to deal with our own sinful heart too. But you know what? All of the weight and all of the responsibility will go upon the backs of the elders. And you need to understand them. This is not my words, really. This is just the Bible. I've tried to make it clear. I've tried to, to get my opinion out of this and just tried to... Preach the word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, there's probably some here today that that are not believers. And this is just so foreign to them. And this should just be contrary to their thinking because they have not submitted themselves, first of all, to Christ. They have not believed in Him. They have not accepted Him. And I pray, Lord, for them today that they would put their faith and trust in in Christ, that they would repent of their sins and turn to You. Just cry out to You, Lord, because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing. It's the proper. Lord, we pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we would just have a submissive spirit, a submissive heart, that we would live at peace. Lord, again, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.